0: Listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. We will get to our episode in a moment, but first, please help us grow. One of the easiest ways to help us is to leave our podcast a positive review. That moves us up in the popularity list and gets us more listeners. Also, tell a friend, tell family members about us. Tell them to head over to ohiomysteries.com and give us a listen. And now, let's throw another log on the fire campers. It's time for a new mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder. With us, as always, is our storyteller and award-winning journalist who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Akron Beacon Journal, Paula Schleiss.
1: Hi, everybody. On August the 26th, 1977, a pleasant little Cleveland suburb woke up to the news that they were harboring a brutal war criminal. Seven Hills was told that one of their own, an unassuming husband, father of three, and auto factory worker on Meadow Lane Road, who was displaced after World War II and immigrated from Germany to pursue his American dream, may have been complicit in the murder of nearly 28,000 people. The Department of Justice asked a federal judge to revoke the citizenship of 57-year-old John Demjanjuk. Accusing him of being Ivan the Terrible, a notoriously cruel guard at the Treblinka extermination camp in Poland, one of the sites Hitler set up for his grand plan to rid Europe of Jewish families. They claimed he wielded a sword, sometimes cutting off prisoners' body parts as they were marched into the gas chambers that ended their lives that he shot and killed prisoners who became too fatigued to carry out the grueling work they had been assigned, that he once forced the head of a prisoner between two strands of barbed wire, then whipped him to death, that he forced men to have sex with dead women. Twists and turns would drag this case on for thirty-five years. Demjaniuk would be deported, brought back, deported again. He'd be sentenced to death by Israel, then released, then convicted in Germany. Two different trials that each lasted a year and a half. In the end, he would die a 91-year-old broken, sick man waiting for yet another appeal to run its course. So, Who was John Demjaniuk? Why did people think he was Ivan the Terrible, even though they ultimately could never prove it? Why would the Germans convict a man that the Jewish state had freed? Frankly, it was such a long and agonizing case. People were begging for it to be over. I will take significantly less than that to tell you the story. We're going to start In 1975. In 1975, an editor with the Ukrainian News gave U.S. Senator Jacob Javits of New York a list of 70 Ukrainians living in the States who were suspected of collaborating with Germans during World War II. U.S. agencies reviewed the list and pulled out nine people that interested them. One was John Demjaniuk. They had heard there were survivors of the Treblinka death camp in Poland who had identified him as Ivan the Terrible, a nickname they gave him to note his particular cruelty. He was also said to have been a guard at Sobibor, a concentration camp in Ukraine. And wouldn't you know it, when they pulled up Demyanyuk's U.S. visa application from 1951, he stated he lived in Sobibor from 1937 to 1943, when his name was not John, but Ivan Demyanyuk. It was a strong beginning to their case. But there is a problem here that is going to dog this case to the very end. German records said Ivan demyanyuk was a guard at three different concentration camps, including Sobibor, but investigators could never find a single person from any of those three camps who remembered him. There is no record that he ever was stationed at Treblinka. And yet at least five Holocaust survivors and a couple of former Nazi guards said, yep, the factory worker from Ohio was the same soldier who operated the gas chamber that killed the Jewish prisoners in their camp. That was good enough for the Department of Justice. They began pursuing his deportation with the argument that whatever the case... Demyanyuk lied on his 1951 immigration application by omitting the fact that he had served at a concentration camp. Until the very end, Demyanyuk will deny he had ever served at any camp and that the records being used against him were forgeries of the KGB. There are some things about John de Myonyuk's life that are not disputed. He was born in a farming village in the western part of Soviet Ukraine on April 3, 1920. As a boy, he survived the notorious Holodomor, sometimes called the Terror Famine, that killed millions of Ukrainians back in the early 1930s. As a young man, he drove a tractor for the Soviet collective farm. Now, there are two versions of this next chapter in his life. U.S. and international investigators said records show that in 1940, at the age of 20, Demyanyuk was conscripted into Russia's Red Army. He fought for the Allies before being taken prisoner by the Germans in the spring of 1942. Within a couple of months, he was turned volunteering to train with the Germans as a Tronicki man. Troniki was a term given to Nazi camp guards. The Ukrainians had no love for the Russians. He served at three different camps, Majdanek, Sobibor, and Flossenburg, until December of 1944. That was just a few months before World War II came to an end. Demjaniuk's version is that he served in the Army, was injured early on, taken prisoner, shuffled around to different prison camps, then joined the Russian Liberation Army, an anti-Soviet Ukraine force, in 1944. He said he never served with the Germans, and that when he filled out a visa application to the U.S., he wrote down that he had been living in the village of Sobibor, because he was told if he identified a Ukrainian village, he would be returned to Russia, the last place he wanted to go. Sobibor had a large Ukrainian population, so he thought that was believable. He said he didn't even know there was an extermination camp nearby that had been given the name of the village. Now we're going to go back to the undisputed part of Demyonyuk's life. When the war ended, Damjaniuk joined other war refugees in a West German displaced persons camp. He found a job as a driver and eventually met and married another war refugee. He and his wife Vera had just had their first child when the U.S. agreed to begin accepting displaced persons in 1948. His immigration application was accepted And his young family sailed across the Atlantic, briefly moving to Indiana, then settling in the Cleveland suburb of Seven Hills. He landed a job as a diesel mechanic at the Ford Auto Factory, changed his name to John when he became a U.S. citizen in 1958, and he and his wife had three children together. The next two decades of his life were relatively uneventful, as far as I can tell. Until his name showed up on that list in 1975.
0: The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siecla, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The Ciecle, spelled Siecle, spelled S I E C L E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get
1: podcasts. prosecutors seeking to have Demjaniuk deported, had their work cut out for them. At his hearing, much of the time they had to rely on proving only that things were possible, that it was possible for Demjaniuk to have been captured by the Germans at the Battle of Kerch and be trained as a Troniki guard that same year, that it was possible for him to have served at Sobibor and Treblinka, Though there was no record of the latter. The only witnesses were five Holocaust survivors and a former SS guard from Treblinka who swore Demyanyuk was Ivan the Terrible, though, as I said, there was no record of Demyanyuk ever having served there. And then there were the matter of existing photos. Frankly, it was really hard to look at photos of a young, fit German soldier of World War II and see the bald, overweight, middle-aged factory worker from Ohio. Demyanyuk was supported by $2 million that had been raised for his defense by Ukrainian-Americans and other Eastern European immigrant groups who were convinced he was a victim of a communist conspiracy. On the first day of his trial, a 150 protesters showed up and burned a Soviet flag. But there were loud cries from the other side as well. American Jews were outraged and demanded his deportation. Prosecutors won that first battle. In 1981, a judge revoked Demyanyuk's citizenship. Damjaniuk then requested political asylum in the U.S. rather than deportation. He was denied asylum. He had not yet been ordered deported when the next twist came. Israel asked for him to be extradited to face their Nazi collaborator's law, and in 1986 The United States sent him overseas to face the justice of the Jewish people he'd been accused of terrorizing. Demyanyuk's trial took place before a special tribunal, and it lasted a year and a half. It was the first televised trial in Israeli history. At first, it didn't get a lot of attention— until the Holocaust survivors started testifying and sharing their tragic, horrifying memories. And then former SS guards got on the stand to tell judges that Yanyuk was the man who operated the petrol engines that sent gas into the death chamber in Treblinka. During the personal testimonies, the trial came to occupy Israel's every waking moment. Demyanyuk's defense relied heavily on the claim that the war ID card that identified him as a Tronicki man working at Sobibor was a KGB forgery. They even scored big when they got a historical expert who had become well known for proving that the so-called Hitler diaries were fake, testified that the Troniki ID card was not authentic. Then Demjaniuk took the stand in his own defense. He recounted his time during the war years and explained again about why he lied about living in Sobibor to avoid being repatriated to the Soviet Union. But the tribunal convicted Demjaniuk and sentenced him to death by hanging. He was placed in solitary confinement for the duration of the appeals process, while carpenters began building his gallows within earshot of his cell. Nobody expected what came next. Because five years later, the Israeli Supreme Court overturned the conviction. They said they were sure Demianyuk had served at the Sobibor camp, but there was plenty of reasonable doubt that he was ever at Treblinka. And the entire trial was based on his time at Treblinka. The witnesses were from Treblinka. There was no record of him at Treblinka. The court uncovered descriptions of Ivan the Terrible by his contemporaries that did not in any way match the description of Demjaniuk. So... The court let him go. They didn't see the point of retrying him for being a guard at Sobibor be because there wasn't a single witness from that camp who could identify him. In 1993, Demjaniuk returned to his family in Ohio, and his American citizenship was restored. Many people in Israel were outraged. Supreme Court members had to deal with death threats. But even Simon Wiesenthal, the famous Nazi hunter, had changed his mind about Demjaniuk and said the new evidence seemed to clear him. Now, let me note we are now almost 20 years into this legal process, and we're not done. Demonyuk survived the Israeli legal process and was back in Ohio, but U.S. prosecutors were still determined to deport him. They launched a second effort to remove his citizenship. In 1999, the Department of Justice filed a complaint saying Demiagnoc had never reported serving as a guard at any camp, and that was lie enough. In 2002, a judge agreed and stripped him of his citizenship a second time. More appeals followed, and in the midst of this, a second country raised its hand and asked for a crack at the factory worker from Ohio. This time, the Germans. In 2009, they charged him with more than 27,900 counts of acting as an accessory to murder. That's one charge for each person killed at Sobibor during the time he was alleged to have been there. And the U.S. agreed to extradite him again. His deportation was finalized at the same time, and so immigration agents arrived at his home in Seven Hills and carried him away in his wheelchair to face trial in Germany. Demjaniuk was a pitiable defendant by now, 90 years old, so sick the German doctors restricted his trial to two 90-minute sessions a day. Each day, a German police officer would push his wheelchair to the defense trial, then wheel him away 90 minutes later. He didn't even bother testifying himself this time. And again, his trial stretched out to 18 months. This time, the Germans convicted him not for being a guard at Treblinka, but for being a guard at Sobibor. They sentenced him to five years in prison, with two years having been served. It was the first time anyone had been convicted simply for serving as a guard with no evidence of having participated directly in any death. Demyanyuk was released while awaiting for his appeals to run their course. He was no flight risk. He lived at a German nursing home and had been wheelchair-bound for years. But he didn't live long enough to see the final outcome. He died March seventeenth, two 2012. Under German law, Demjaniuk remains innocent because his conviction could not be upheld on appeal. People are still arguing over whether Demjaniuk was at any camp at all. As recently as January of 2020, A photo album from a Sobibor guard named Johann Niemann was made public, and some people think a guard who appears in two of the photos look an awful lot like the Ivan Demyanyuk on that visa application. After his death, his family requested to have his body returned so it could be buried in the United States, and reportedly it was. Its location has never been disclosed, for obvious reasons. They also tried to get his citizenship restored posthumously, but the U.S. Court of Appeals in Cincinnati denied it, saying there's no process for granting someone citizenship after death.
0: That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to OhioMysteries.com. Also, for more shows like ours... Head on over to KillerPodcasts.com. We are a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network.
1: Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world, from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts.